Welcome to Flaps Podcast. Isn't that an amazing sound? It's the mighty Merlin from a Spitfire, and you could be flying it. We visit the Boltby Flight Academy at Goodwood. You don't get in a Spitfire, you strap one on. It becomes a part of you, and that's exactly how it feels. You'll also be hearing about the big issue that's got pilots in a spin, and all the forums are flap, airfields at risk of closure. Wellsbourne, ever popular, is under threat, as is Longmaston, and Manston in Kent has recently closed with a loss of 150 jobs. We'll be looking into this worrying trend. The airfield once gone is gone forever. And of course, in a stroke, it meets all their housing targets. Nine out of ten cars come past and toot their horn. As the flying season gets properly underway, there are a few airspace restrictions to consider. We'll get the latest from the CAA. And of course, Pablo Mason is full of the joys of spring, but only for a minute. Bugger. All that coming up in this edition of Flaps. Foxtrot Lima Alpha Papa. Flaps. We love flying. You probably love flying as well. But is private flying and maybe general aviation more widely under threat in Britain? Recently, we've been hearing about airfields at risk of closure and some have indeed closed. Uh, at the moment, there are dark clouds over Longmaston and Wellsbourne in the Midlands and recently Manston Airport in Kent closed with the loss of nearly 150 jobs. Airfields closing isn't really new. Burniston near Derby became a car factory in 1989. Ipswich Airport closed in the mid-90s and even Coventry closed and then opened again a few years ago. And when you're flying around, you're never far from looking down on a, on a closed RAF base. So even if your airfield isn't a threat, a declining industry helps nobody really. And of course, fewer airfields mean fewer destinations. Uh, we'll hear from Wellsbourne and Manston in a moment. But first, let's speak to Peter Kember. He's an aviation planning consultant, a pilot, and uh, he's even built a couple of his own aircraft. Welcome to Flaps, Peter. Pleased to talk to you. Thank you. Well, listen, why are so many airfields at risk at the moment? I think the problem is that um, if you're an airfield owner and you're not an enthusiast for aviation, then the attractive prices that are being offered for housing land at the moment are a very real draw for you. And I think we're seeing that with, with a number of airfields at the moment, uh, particularly those in the Midlands, but also Panshanger. And presumably councils are under pressure from, from central government, aren't they, to, to build more homes? This is, the big, this is the big mantra at the moment, isn't it? We need, we need more housing. Yes, and we do. There's no doubt about it. Um, uh, and the easy option is, for many authorities, many local planning authorities, the easy option is to find previously developed land, sometimes called brownfield land. Yeah, would, would an airfield, would that count as brownfield land? Yes, it does. E even though, even though usually they're in fairly, fairly leafy, I'm thinking of Wellsbourne, I mean, although it's been developed, it's an airfield, it's, yep. it's still in the middle of the countryside, isn't it, essentially? Yes, it is, but I mean, the truth of the matter is that it's got a paved, paved areas, taxiways, hangars, all of those um, structures contribute to the fact that it's previously developed land or brownfield land, and it's ripe for redevelopment, and uh, as we know from Wellsbourne, although the local authority at the moment are not persuaded that it should be redeveloped for housing, um, in the other case I've mentioned, Pansanger, the local authority have actually um, decided that that's their preferred housing site. And of course, in a stroke, it meets all their housing targets. So somebody might be listening to this now thinking, I'm not based at Pansanger or Wellsbourne or Longmaston. No risk to me. My airfield's perfectly safe. Is it really? 
Well, I suppose all the time you've got an owner who is a, 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 a very positive individual, positive for aviation, very enthusiastic, and doesn't want to redevelop it. And that's the case in my own aerodrome, Laddingford in West Kent. Uh, it's ten of us that bought it, and we've we've kept it in. Uh, we, we intend to keep it forever in in use as an airfield all the time that we can fly. Uh, in this country. So um, that's the only way really to control the future of an aerodrome is for it to be owned by the people that want to continue flying. So really, I mean, some of these airfields at threat, possibly the best thing to do would then be for maybe if, if the owner wants to wants to sell the land for housing, it would, be, it would be a good idea perhaps for everyone to get together and try and buy it. Would, would that be a, a solution to some uh, well, of these it, places? It, it's potentially a solution, um, it, but it's the value. That's the problem. Mm. As an aerodrome, it may have a value of X, as housing land, if if the um, owner can get a planning permission for redevelopment for housing, it's probably a hundred times X. So the value is very much greater for housing land if it gets its planning permission or it's allocated for development in a local plan. And that's the problem. Whilst um, a, an enthusiastic group of pilots, uh, an aviation enthusiast, could get the money together perhaps to buy it as an airfield, they would never be able to do that if it was allocated for housing. I and mean, if you've managed to see off closure, if closure is rejected, does that mean you've seen it off for good, or do these things often come back over the the, the, the years? No, if it's seen off, you know, in other words, the, the local authority decided it can't be redeveloped for housing, or on appeal, if the planning inspector from the planning inspectorate decide that it's not appropriate for redevelopment for housing or other forms of development, then that's probably good for five to ten years. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's never going to be redeveloped. Um, there is always the threat all the time housing land commands so much uh, value. Can government policy make a difference here? Yes, it can. The government is at the root of this. Uh, they, the previous um, planning policy guidance was very helpful towards aviation, towards aerodromes, safeguarding aerodromes. Um, the national planning policy guidance now is not nearly as strong as it was a matter of three or four years ago. So it, it's not so easy now. We don't have quite so many... Um, policy guidance notes to help us. And obviously we're talking about airfields closing down. Um, I don't suppose anyone's planning to open a new one, are they, anytime soon? Uh, it's very rare. I can't think. I think I've worked on one of those in the past 20 to 30 years. So they're very, very rare. It's very difficult to get planning permission for a new aerodrome. Um, you know, there's usually a public outcry whenever any... Yeah. Wants to wants to create a new area. So we need to look after the ones we've got. We've got to safeguard the ones that yeah. we've got. Peter, really good to speak to you. Thanks ever so much for talking to us. You're very welcome. So Wellsbourne, we mentioned Wellsbourne quite a bit there. Most private pilots would say it's one of the the best GA airfields because of its location, smack bang in the centre of England. Uh, it probably features in many log books. Uh, plus, well, we're biased. We fly from there. And the cafe's brilliant it as is, well. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. But in March, the bombshell was dropped. News broke of Wellsbourne's possible sale for redevelopment. If popular, busy and viable airfields such as Wellsbourne are at risk, is anywhere safe? Uh, let's speak now to Duncan McKillop, chairman of Wellsbourne Matters, who's flown from the airfield for many years. Uh, welcome along, Duncan. Hello there. How are you? Uh, very well. Thank you very much. A little bit worrying about Wellsbourne, isn't it? Just tell us what's going on. What's the situation? The developers um, have put in a, a proposal for building 1,600 uh, homes on the uh, site of the airfield. Well, this, of course, uh, caused a bit of a shock because uh, it was completely unexpected. But uh, what has happened, essentially, is the council has to put forward a core strategy document which sets out their, uh, how they're going to manage things for between now and uh, 2031. Now, there are a lot of potential sites that have been 
uh, put forward for um, proposals. Uh, and uh, as you know, Longmaston and Wellsbourne are two of those sites. There are various other ones. And the council has recently voted on their order of preference, shall we say, for which sites they would like to see developed. What do your neighbours think? What do the local residents think? From the, the amazing response we've had from uh, uh, the people in the immediate village in Wellsbourne Village itself and surrounding villages, has been universally positive. The idea of having such a huge development, 1,600 houses, is a massive I mean, um, if people haven't been to Wellsbourne or don't know it, it, it really is in the middle of the countryside, isn't it? it? It's a tiny little place and suddenly dumping 1,600 homes there seems like a lot. Well, yes, I mean, it would pretty well double the size of the village. The, the people in the village want to keep it as a village. They, they like the airfield. There is also a very, very large Saturday market that happens that, uh, on one of the disused air, uh, runways at, at Wellsbourne. And this is one of the biggest markets in the country and people come from miles around to uh, to do their shopping and of course the villagers use it to do their local shopping as well so it uh, they really like the idea of that and if the development was to go ahead that market would also be completely lost so what do you think ultimately is, is going to happen to wellsbourne then duncan uh, well our hopes are that the planning inspectorate will uh, look at our case for keeping uh, wellsbourne as an active airfield um, and say, OK, well, look, that the best possible use of this particular site is as an airfield, maybe some airfield-related developments to go onto it, uh, increased hangarage, maybe some uh, more engineering and so on and so forth, but uh, to, to retain it as an airfield because of the benefits that it brings to the, the local area. You can put a housing estate anywhere. Any flat field will do, but the trouble is you can't put an airfield anywhere other than where it is at the moment. And it would be a, not just a big loss to pilots, but also to the, to the general public, wouldn't it, really? Uh, a, a huge loss to the general public. We have a, uh, a very, very popular airfield cafe, which is visited by people of all stripes and all walks of life who come down there purely because there's not many eateries that have got such a, a lot of excitement happening outside. And you, as well as the cafe, you've got the Vulcan, of course, haven't um, you, as well? Uh, the, fa- yeah. the fantastic example of a Vulcan. It is, yes. I mean, it's a, it's a taxable Vulcan. We have the Wings and Wheels event coming up and uh, we have huge crowds attending that i suppose i suppose the problem is though isn't it It, and and it's human nature if you've got a piece of land and it's very valuable and someone's willing to give you many millions of pounds for it then you're probably likely to take the cash aren't you absolutely i mean this is this but this is not unique to just airfields this is happening all over the country in many many different sites Uh, the requirement to the government has a requirement to build a certain number of homes over the, the coming period don't know exactly how many, but I think it's a, it's a significant number. And so the councils are being forced to come up with some numbers and to work out where to put them. Uh, I suppose a runway is priceless to a pilot, but pretty worthless to someone who needs a new home. Uh, in, indeed, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and our stance is that we're not objecting to new homes per se. I mean, we've, got, we've all got to live somewhere. <laughs> you know, we all live in a house uh, or a flat or something. So, so it's not as if it's, uh, we're against... The housing, but what we are trying to 
bring to mind is that the airfield once gone is gone forever. Well, we've you very much got our support. We have an interest because, well, we love flying from there and it would be a great loss to mankind if, well, the cafe went. That would be the end of the world pretty much, wouldn't it? It pretty well would, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's my, uh, yes it's I've my, never had such a good breakfast. Mm, yes, it's my works canteen pretty well. <laughs> so, yeah. Duncan, we wish you well with it. and well, uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, we'll keep a pace with all the developments. Thanks for talking Indeed. to us. Thanks very much. Bye. Flaps in the air, everywhere. Summer's on the way. Is it? Well, yes, summer's on the way, and that means... Weeks of rainfall of biblical proportions. Well, yes, but also... Wasps in the sandwiches. Yes, but also a summer of sport. And there's a busy summer of sport this year, and a busy summer of sport means that parts of airspace across the United Kingdom are going to see restrictions. To explain more, Jonathan Nicholson from the CAA joins us now. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, guys. So is this going to be a bit like the Olympics was a couple of years ago? No, it's definitely not on the scale, complexity or length of time of the Olympics, but there are a few things happening that we need people to be aware of. So explain exactly what's going on then. Tell us what's happening. Okay, so uh, there's the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow for which the government has put in place some small airspace restrictions. Those go from the 13th of July to the 6th of August. So people in the Glasgow area and some of the places around, it's not just all in Glasgow, there's diving and shooting and triathlons in other little places as well. So they just need to be aware to look out for those. Um, and also the Tour de France, which is in the UK for the start of the race. Um, that's between the 5th and the 7th of July. It's it's a, what we're calling a rolling restriction. So the, to, rather than block off the whole airspace for the route, it, the restriction actually moves as the race moves. So between the 5th and the 7th of July, it goes past airfields like Duxford, Andrewsfield, Northweald, so popular pieces of airspace. People just need to be careful because the restriction is a timed restriction and it moves. So just watch out for that. Can I just run something by you there? Surely the Tour de France is in France, isn't it, Jonathan? (laughs) Apart from when it's in Yorkshire, Cambridgeshire (laughs) and a few other places. Yeah, Yeah. it's a slightly odd thing, is it? The Tour tour of France goes all Yorkshire. Hey, up, up and it is. (laughs) Now, isn't there something going on across the channel as well, Jonathan? Yeah, another one to look out for if you're um, flying to France at all. Um, Between the 2nd and the 8th of June, the French have got D-Day celebrations going on, uh, quite a major event for which they are putting in um, restricted and prohibited airspace as well. So look out for that one. So really, there's quite a lot to remember. It it all worked very well for the Olympics, if I remember correctly. There was was very little went wrong with it. So um, hopefully the same again this summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but because these are lots of little things happening at different times and different places, we just need people to be aware do their planning properly. So Sky Demon or whatever you use to check your no-towns, all of these will appear on there. And um, uh, all the Commonwealth details and more um, are at the Airspace Safety website. So airspacesafety.com forward slash Commonwealth has all the restrictions, all the details, and how to use the restricted airspace. Because like the Olympics for the for the restricted airspace in the Commonwealth Games, you need to pre-apply to get in. So it's a bit like the Olympics then, but it's also nothing like it yeah exactly right okay that's clear that's up there <laughs> right good. i'm glad we had this chat i'm so much clearer now we've got the tour de france that's in yorkshire and it's like the olympics but nothing like the olympics good Every, everybody's happy with what, that, what sports were taking place in the commonwealth games you named a couple didn't you um uh, swimming shooting diving 
Yeah. No, yeah. no flying. What's going on? No. Well, it, you asked me that question during the Olympics, and it's exactly the same. Unfortunately, we still haven't managed to get any in. Oh, sorry. Same old gags. Never mind. I get the message. <laughs> Jonathan, uh, good to speak to you as always. Uh, and remind us again where people can find out all the information if they need it. Yep. So check your NOTAMs, use Sky Demon Light or whichever system you use. They'll all be on there. And airspacesafety.com has got all the restrictions on as well. Flaps podcast for all things that fly, even birds. I say, Ginger, how was your sortie this morning? My sortie this morning? Bombs away, splashdown complete. And how many hun did you wipe out? Hun? None. But I did flush. What? Oh, oh, anyway, isn't it great being Spitfire aces. Certainly is, Bunny. But don't you feel sorry for those unfortunate Johnnies who aren't... Hang on a moment. What's this? Ah, from the Ministry. It seems that any fool can become a ruddy Spitfire pilot these days. Hear that, boys? Well, boys, I gather that that web idiot visited the Boltby Flight Academy at Goodwood, where this can actually happen. He spoke to Matt Jones. He reckons he's a big cheese there, lads. The school was conceived to train pilots to fly Spitfires, to train a modern breed of Spitfire um, pilots, because when I was given the chance to learn, I found it very difficult to find anyone to teach me and to find the right institution to do that in. So it seemed that there was a, uh, an opportunity there. And uh, so we set up primarily to, to fill that gap. And off the back of that has come the opportunity to give an introduction to lots of other people into flying the Spitfire. And that noise in the background, that isn't the Spitfire, is it? That's not the Spitfire. <laughs> that's, our, uh, that's our Harvard that's just having some engineering work done. So just talk us through this. I mean, how many are there still left flying? Uh, there's a, uh, about 40, maybe a few more than 40. There's uh, six two-seaters. And where did, where did this one come from? This one was built in 44, first flew in 45, uh, was sold to the South Africans in 48. Uh, had an incident in uh, South Africa in the early 50s, and then... What sort of incident? It actually hit a, a Harvard <laughs> okay. on the ground, fortunately. Um, but wrote both the aircraft off and uh, wasn't seen again until it was found in a scrapyard in 1982, I think, in a place called Snake Valley in uh, in South Africa. So how did um, how did you guys come by it? We went through quite a few owners after it was found there. It was brought back to the UK and a couple of people stepped in to have it rebuilt and ultimately Paul Portelli, uh, sadly, sadly deceased, uh, before he saw it fly, bought it as a single-seater and it was him that decided it was going to be a two-seater and therefore uh, changed or, or undid some of the build that had been done to then you know, switch it to the two-seat format. And if you don't mind me asking, how much does a Spitfire cost these days? It's a good question. Um, I think we think they've gone up a little bit in the last few years. Uh, Steve paid 1.58 million for it and a 200,000 pound bottom fee. So, but we think it's sitting to two and a quarter million at the moment. You, you don't realise how big they are, do you? You sort of you see them flying and you see them on the ground on the TV. They look kind of small, but it's a big old it's a big yeah, old bird, a isn't fairly, it? It's a fairly it's a fairly large aircraft. Yeah, big wingspan, a oh, big uh, wing breadth, and. Uh, but there's not much room in there for the pilots. It's all designed to, you know, house engine and fuel and armoury. What are they like to fly? 
beautiful, utterly. They are without vice. Uh, I fly a modern jet for for a family, and that's really management as opposed to flying. This, well, Jeffrey Wellham, a, a very famous Battle of Britain pilot, very famously says, uh, "You don't get in a Spitfire; you strap one on, and it becomes a part of you." And that's exactly how it feels. You think, and I'm I'm paraphrasing his words here, uh, but you think about the direction you want to go in and you're there and it's happening and there's no alarms telling you you can't do things it will do whatever you tell it to do it's uh, it's unadulterated beautiful flying machine so everything you've heard about them is uh, is and, right and more yeah. and more and, and 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 to be fair you know uh we try and protect the engines these days to keep them running for as long as possible i've never pushed the uh, the the throttle uh, lever up to even half power yet I, you I display the aircraft every display that you've ever seen you never will have seen it using more than half of its potential really? wow uh, so to, to know what it can do at that level and know that, that you could double what you've just produced and and it would keep going was just phenomenal and is it easy to fly is it benign uh well they, they famously say the hardest thing about flying spitfire is getting the owners to let you um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there are a few tricky things. Once it's in the air, it's an utter joy to fly. It's a little, it's a little tricky to get back down on the ground because you have poor visibility um, as you come into land. And the, uh, without going into too much sort of flying and aer aerodynamic detail, um, the large propeller, the huge amount of torque, and the fact that the third wheel is at the back and is not a steerable wheel means, means that controllability on the ground is quite difficult. If someone wants to come and fly it, do, do they need to have tail dragger experience or will you teach them all that? Um, if someone wants to come and fly it and, and get to a point where we sign them off as a Spitfire pilot ready to go out in the world and try and find work doing that, they need to have a fair bit of experience. But we can do um, tail dragger experience uh, and we can teach people from on the Tiger Moth and, and, on, and in the Chipmunk. Um, exactly how to fly these aircraft so yeah to answer your question we can we train people from scratch in fact i had a chap come to see me at the last revival who said uh, matt i've never flown anything i want to fly my own spitfire how much time do i need to dedicate and how much is it going to cost me and uh, we're still talking and he may well give up two years of his life to come and sit here with us and learn from scratch so that's from from nothing no ppl nothing. he's going to learn from scratch he'll, he'll, if, if I mean, okay that's i mean how much do you think that would cost roughly ballpark figure do you know including the aircraft yeah two and a half million pounds probably <laughs> and if if you've got a ppl because you you will teach ppls won't you and it's considerably it's considerably cheaper if you're a ppl to, to learn to do this it is absolutely <laughs> absolutely right and and to be fair you need an absolute minimum of a thousand hours total time before we would consider you as a uh, potential to fly the aircraft outright from the front seat. We have an introduction course, which is a two-day course, which mirrors uh, the training that Battle of Britain pilots went through. That is Tiger Moth, then Harvard, then Spitfire. And the uh, the trainee who is a pilot will sit in the back seat of the Spitfire for that flight. And there's a reason for that. 
it's an incredibly emotional experience and it doesn't matter. Even if we have guys come along with 15, 20,000 hours of time and they've flown similar kinds of uh, tailwheel powerful aircraft, we still put them in the back on the front seat because of the emotion that's involved. Mm. The first time I flew it, I sat in the back and we got to 3,000 feet and you know, as, a, as a commercial airline uh, pilot's license holding pilot, um, the guy gave me control. He said, you have control, Matt. And I looked at it and I thought, my first thought was, what do you mean I have control? <laughs> it, was, it was so overwhelming. I'd forgotten for a, for a moment that I could actually fly <laughs> these things. And this was not close to the ground. This was just poling it around the air. So it, it really is... It's uh, a moment. It's a real moment. And, and, to sort of, and to really sort of crystallize on that point, we, we have um, people of ages really from about 30 up to 70 who come and fly, and I've had some of the, the, the chaps in their later years, I'd say about 50% can't get out of the aircraft for emotion, are crying in the aircraft, or subsequently that evening, and I've had wives call me or speak to me on the day saying, Matt, I've known this guy for 40 years, I've never seen him cry before. What is it about this, this plane? It, I mean, it's beautiful, isn't it? We, but what is, what is it about the Spitfire, do you think? It's a, it's a question I've been asked a lot, it's a question I've thought about a lot, and I think it just encompasses an era where Britain was at its best. It is a phenomenal flying machine, as we've mentioned. It's a phenomenal piece of design and manufacturing in a time when it was absolutely necessary for that. And it was flown and engineered by very brave, very young people for all of our for all of our uh, benefit so okay i'm sold i'm sold <laughs> haven't got enough hours i'm afraid but i'm sold so if um if people want to do this how do they go how do they get in touch with you what do they do how much will it cost to do a, from a ppl how much would it cost to to get to to fly the spitfire to do the two-day introduction course is five and a half thousand pounds plus fat uh, wow uh, yes, it is. It's, a, it's, wow. a, it's a lot of money. Uh, I'm saving. The aircraft are, well, the aircraft speak for themselves, but we're very lucky that we have 16 extremely fine instructors. When guys come along and do the course, of course they're looking, to, looking forward to flying the Spitfire, but actually they get five or six hours talking to these guys about their experiences in life and about what they think about mm. the aircraft, and that in itself is very powerful. How hard is it to keep them flying? I mean, wh where do spares come from? Um, th there are a few companies around, uh, because there are sort of 40, 45 of these aircraft flying and there's a few more being restored, there are companies around who do a very, very fine job in, in making parts as required, but, you know, there are still parts around and it's amazing, even places through like eBay, you know, parts come up and people have got them in their, you know, in their attics and in their garages <laughs> and they don't know what they are, they say a bit for a Spitfire and put it on for five pounds and, wow, that's... We've, we need it's worth about 20 years. grand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, it's a, it's a fantastic thing. It's a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant idea. And it's the great that you get to come and hang out in, in this posh gentleman's club as well. It's, it's very lovely. Thank um, you. Does uh, it display? Do you display it much? Yep, I display it. In fact, I displayed it at Goodwood House last night. Uh, 8.30 in the evening, sun setting, not a breath of wind. I had to pinch myself. At, uh, You've got a tough job, Matt. <laughs> God, I hate just you. I've only just met you and I hate you. Just for the record, I'm <laughs> sitting here with grease all over my hands. It's not all, uh, it's not all flying. You have, to, you have to do the work to, uh, to keep them going that's as well. That's not work. That's not work. <laughs> Don't tell me that's work. Uh, it's uh, it's boltbeeflightacademy.co.uk, isn't it, your website? That's if right. If people want to find out more. Uh, right. You have the best job in the world. It's official. 
Good Thanks to speak to much. you, Matt. Yeah, and you. Thanks for taking the time. Flaps. Climbing where others descend. A bit earlier on, we were talking about airfields at risk of closure. Manston has been an airfield for nearly 100 years. It survived enemy bombings and air show accidents. It even appeared in a Bond film. But it finally closed on the 15th of May with the loss of 144 jobs. Uh, we can talk to Keith Church now, chairman of Save Manston Airport. And uh, you're, you're actually on, you're on protest corner at the moment. Is this right, Keith? Yes, actually, the corner's been named Keith's Corner because that's where I've been standing for the past three, nearly four weeks now. So, uh, and, uh, and, and I can hear in the background people honking their horns. Is that <laughs> is that in support of the uh, the Save Manston Airport campaign? Yes, it, it totally is. Uh, and in fact, the levels of uh, people coming past and showing their appreciation and support has increased over the past four weeks. So almost, you know, it's basically nine out of ten cars come past and took their horn. Yeah, I mean, we, when we were talking to you just before we started recording this, we could barely hear you. you had to ask you to step away from the road. It was that loud. Why do you think the the locals are are showing so much support for the airport? Well, because uh, what we try to do as a group is we try to get the facts out of there now about what the airport does to the community, uh, the effects of the airport, um, and people understand this now, and actually they see it as a vital asset. And I think a lot of people have already already known that uh, for, for a long time. But you know, as you say, we've got a, we've got an airport with heritage here. Um, First World War, Second World War, um, and even defended England during the 60s, during the Cold War era. Um, and there's been quite a few million people that have also passed through the airport as well for their, for their holidays. Yeah, because yeah. you, had, you had KLM, didn't you, flying a passenger service from there. So it, it seems extraordinary that a, you know, a fairly viable airport did close. Um, I mean, what, what happened to... Obviously, the jobs have gone. There was a flying club as well there. What, what's happened to all of these different activities? Well, TVA, TV Aviation, um, or TG Aviation, sorry, is now hands to operate from three separate bases just to try and maintain its business. Now, it's got its main office here at Manston, uh, which is still open, uh, but it's flying in and out of Lid Airport uh, and has some of its other aircraft, aircraft stored in a field in Kemble. So it's not an ideal situation for them, and it's obviously quite costly for them. Um, we've still got um, Avman Engineering here as well, um, uh, they obviously need aircraft flying them out for their business to survive, and they're looking at the alternatives at the moment. So it's not a good scenario. Um, Polar, uh, the helicopter company, is still flying here. Their needs a lot, you know, but not the runway. So it's not just the 150 jobs, I might add, as well. When you include um, TG Aviation, their staff, Avman Engineering, and their staff, um, plus the other ancillary buildings, you look at nigh on 270 people that uh, came and worked on and lived on Manston day in, day out. So it's a, it's a big loss. Keith, now your, your group's called Save Manston Airport. It's closed. Is it not too late now to save it? Oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, we are doing everything we can. I mean, the airport has closed. Um, there is still a runway here. There is still the ancillaries here. ILS is still here. Control Tower is still here. Um, all that needs to happen is for the airport just to be um, purchased off Anglo, and you can come in and turn it straight back on, bar the CAA certification, which obviously we'll have to get bound and uh, make sure that we still meet the requirements for that. But, um, you know, we've got an airport here. It just needs people to sit in it, do their job, uh, and make it successful. And with the right business people behind it, it can do that. Well, we'll let you get back to your, your protest. Uh, you're certainly popular with the locals, the amount of honking we've had in the last couple of minutes. Thank you very much. At least someone there in the uh, in the tower had a bit of uh, gallows humour. What do you mean? Well, uh, this is the ATIS on, I think, the last day. Listen oh, okay. to this. Runway in your 
Very good. And now the end is near. <laughs> now the end. And there's another one as well. Information, November. One, one, five, zero hours weather. Runway news, one, zero. It's the final countdown. Surface wind. <laughs> it's the final countdown. Very good. Well, hopefully not, and hopefully uh, Manston can get uh, get back into business again soon. It's Mason's Minute. In one of the books, What I Wrote, there's a quote under a picture of me receiving my pilot's wings. One of the proudest days of my life. Um, I'm still entitled to wear them today. I'm not sure on what. Pyjamas, dressing gown, flying suit at the local flying club. I don't think I'd dare. But it was, without a doubt, the most proud, wonderful, exquisite moment. There had been a little over a year of flying training. I was very lucky at the time. I was born lucky. Um, in that the Air Force was short of fighter pilots. It didn't have a good enough facility to train pilots on the Tripmunk propeller trainer. And because I'd got a private pilot's license, which I'd been awarded with a flying scholarship, I went straight on to jet training. Anyway, after about 150 hours of jet training, we were awarded our wings and then we went on to advanced flying training, which was, in my case, flying the Nat at Valley. But a proud moment... Yes, it's all done in the, in the best possible military fashion. There's always a parade. There's the senior squadron and you're the graduating squadron, some 20-odd pilots, pilot officers new to the RAF, probably from an intake of 50 or 60. So the 40-odd just didn't make it for various reasons, aptitude, application, dedication, ability, whatever. Nothing to do with us being supermen. Maybe we thought we were at the time. But um, a bit of luck, a lot of judgment, and whether or not you could fit and do it. But the pride, the most exquisite, wonderful, marvellous pride of being awarded those wings. And of course, the realisation, I suppose, that the chances of finishing a full flying career, uh, untouched and unblemished, were still reasonably reduced. Pilots would be killed along the way. Pilots uh, in both training accidents and on operational sorties and pilots of course at some stage may no longer be able to make the grade and they would be discreetly retired from flying. Some would keep their wings uh, for various reasons but not fly again and many would suffer the embarrassment of having them removed. So pride, passion, lust for excitement and adventure, it was all there and of course in the twilight of my flying career, I had a double dose of pride when I watched my boy, Michael, awarded his RAF wings. Was it a moment of greater pride than I, I received my own? Do you know, I think it probably was. Michael went on for a pretty basic career. He started off flying the Harrier. He then went on to fly the Typhoon. After a short tour on the front line, flying typhoons he became a typhoon instructor and unfortunately he's just had a real pig of a posting he's off to australia to fly the f-18 super hornet for the next three years Bugger. thanks pablo that's probably about a minute that's never a minute
Now, we've been talking about airfields at risk of closure. What happens if one actually does close and your flying club or your flying school's based at an airfield that's at risk? Well, this happened a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago. Plymouth Airport closed down and um, Plymouth Flying School had to decide what to do. And it relocated to, well, to Newquay and became Fly Newquay Pilot Training. From there is Marshall Kligman. He's the head of training. Hi, Marshall. Hi, hello. Tell me, what effect did Plymouth closing have on the flying school? It had a massive effect. We, we obviously, moving a business, any business, even 10 metres down the road would be um, fairly traumatic. Um, you know, we had to relocate to an airport uh, a good hour's drive away, uh, a little bit more if there's uh, traffic. And demographically, we moved from an area where within... 15, 20 miles of us was maybe 350,000 people to where we now are. And Cornwall is lovely, but there ain't that, that, many, that many people very close. So how, what sort of effect has that had on, on the membership and the flying? Well, we were very, very unsure what was going to happen. And I'd sort of worked on the basis that maybe we would lose 70%, maybe more of our existing customers, our members, our PPLs. I was absolutely amazed. We maybe lost 1%, 2%. Virtually everybody came with, and um, that that was just amazing. And we've also done this at a time when we have um, enjoyed (coughs) um, two or three years, certainly two years, of the most appalling weather. (laughs) Last year was ferociously wet, and the last winter was just ferocious. So um, it has been testing. Has Newquay welcomed you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the airport is fabulous. The the management team and the people that work around the airport are are great. And the local community is quite supportive of the airport. So, yeah, we're very happy to be there. What sort of cost was involved with moving? I I couldn't put a figure on it. You, You know, you've got the physical cost of loading things into a van. The cost was more in terms of the loss of business rather than the forking out to... Uh, finance the move. We we lost a lot of business. We lost a lot of revenue from a third of our business is trial lessons, and that uh, that faded. So um, it, it was a significant cost. At least flying can continue, which I think is the important thing, isn't it? Yes, indeed, absolutely. Well, Marshall, thank you for explaining to us what happens uh, if your airfield faces closure. Thanks for talking to us. No problem. Thank you. Flaps podcast. So that's it for another Flaps podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch, we're mail at flapspodcast.com or remember you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be along again soon with another edition. In the meantime, safe and happy flying. Thanks for listening. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps.